Book Four, Chapter Five of Marcella. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. Marcella by Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Book Four, Chapter Five. Meanwhile, Marcella and her companion were sitting in the stone parlour side by side, save for a small table between them which held the various papers Aldous had brought with him. At first there had been on her side, as soon as they were alone, a feeling of stifling embarrassment. All the painful, proud sensations with which she had received the news of her father's action returned upon her. She would have liked to escape. She shrank from what once more seemed an encroachment, a situation as strange as it was embarrassing. But his manner very soon made it impossible, indeed ridiculous, to maintain such an attitude of mind. He ran through his business with his usual clearness and rapidity. It was not complicated. Her views proved to be the same as his, and she was empowered to decide for her mother. Aldous took notes of one or two of her wishes, left some papers with her for her mother's signature, and then his work was practically done. Nothing throughout could have been more reassuring or more every day than his demeanour. Then, indeed, when the end of their business interview approached, and with it the opportunity for conversation of a different kind, both were conscious of a certain tremor. To him this old parlour was torturingly full of memories. In this very place where they sat, he had given her his mother's pearls, and taken a kiss in return from the cheek that was once more so near to him with what free and exquisite curves the hair set about the white brow how beautiful was the neck the hand what ripened softened charm in every movement the touching and rebuking thought rose in his mind that from her nursing experience and its frank contact with the ugliest realities of the physical life a contact he had often shrunk from realising there had come to her not so much added strength as a new subtlety and sweetness, some delicate, vibrating quality that had been entirely lacking to her first splendid youth. Suddenly she said to him, with a certain hesitation, "'There was one more point I wanted to speak to you about. Can you advise me about selling some of those railway shares?' She pointed to an item in a short list of investments that lay beside them. "'But why?' said Aldous, surprised. They are excellent property already, and are going up in value. Yes, I know. But I want some ready money immediately, more than we have, to spend on cottage building in the village. I saw Builder yesterday, and came to a first understanding with him. We are altering the water supply, too. They have begun upon it already, and it will cost a good deal. Aldous was still puzzled. I see, he said. But don't you suppose that the income of the estate— now that your father has done so much to free it, will be enough to meet expenses of that kind, without trenching on investments? A certain amount, of course, should be systematically laid aside every year for rebuilding, and estate improvements generally. Yes, but you see, I only regard half of the income as mine. She looked up with a little smile. He was now standing in front of her, against the fire. His grey eyes, which could be, as she knew well, so cold and inexpressive, bent upon her with eager interest. "'Only half the income,' he repeated. "'Ah,' he smiled kindly, "'is that an arrangement between you and your mother?' Marcella let her hand fall with a little despairing gesture. "'Oh, no,' she said. 
"'Oh, no, mamma. Mamma will take nothing from me or from the estate. She has her own money, and she will live with me part of the year.' The intonation in the words touched Aldous profoundly. "'Part of the year?' he said, astonished, yet not knowing how to question her. "'Mrs. Boyce will not make Mella her home?' "'She would be thankful if she had never seen it,' said Marcella quickly. "'And she would never see it again if it weren't for me. "'It's dreadful what she went through last year, when—when when I was in London.' Her voice fell. Glancing up at him involuntarily, her eye looked with dread for some chill, some stiffening in him. Probably he condemned her, had always condemned her, for deserting her home and her parents. But instead she saw nothing but sympathy. "'Mrs. Boyce has had a hard life,' he said, with grave feeling." Marcella felt a tear leap, and furtively raised her handkerchief to brush it away. Then, with a natural selfishness, her quick thought took another turn. A wild yearning rose in her mind to tell him much more than she had ever done in old days of the miserable home circumstances of her early youth, to lay stress on the mean unhappiness which had depressed her own child nature whenever she was with her parents, and had withered her mother's character secretly passionately she often made the past an excuse excuse for what for the lack of delicacy and loyalty of the best sort of breeding which had marked the days of her engagement never never to speak of it with him to pour out everything to ask him to judge to understand to forgive she pulled herself together by a strong effort reminding herself in a flash of all that divided them of womanly pride, of Betty MacDonald's presence at the court, of that vain confidence to Hallin, of which her inmost being must have been ashamed, but that something calming and sacred stole upon her whenever she thought of Hallin, lifting everything concerned with him into a category of its own. No, let her selfish weakness make no fettering claim upon the man before her. Let her be content with the friendship she had, after all, achieved, that was now doing its kindly best for her. All these images, like a tumultuous procession, ran through the mind in a moment. He thought, as she sat there with her bent head, the hands clasped round the knee in the way he knew so well, that she was full of her mother, and found it difficult to put what she felt into words. "'But tell me about your plan,' he said gently, "'if you will.' "'Oh, it is nothing,' she said hurriedly. I am afraid you will think it impracticable, perhaps wrong. It's only this. You see, as there is no one depending on me, as I am practically alone, it seemed to me I might make an experiment. Four thousand a year is a great deal more than I need ever spend, than I ought, of course, to spend on myself. I don't think altogether what I used to think. I mean to keep up this house, to make it beautiful, to hand it on perhaps more beautiful than I found it, to those that come after and I mean to maintain enough service in it both to keep it in order and to make it a social centre for all the people about, for everybody of all classes, so far as I can. I want it to be a place of amusement and delight and talk to us all, especially to the very poor. After all, her cheek flushed under the quickening of her thought, everybody on the estate, in their different degree, has contributed to this house, in some sense, for generations, i want it to come into their lives to make it their possession their pride as well as mine but then that isn't all the people here can enjoy nothing use nothing till they have a worthier life of their own 
"'Wages here, you know, are terribly low, much lower,' she added timidly, "'than with you. They are, as a rule, eleven or twelve shillings a week. Now there seem to be about one hundred and sixty labourers on the estate altogether, in the farmer's employment and in our own. Some, of course, are boys, and some old men earning a half-wage. Mr. Craven and I have worked it out, and we find that an average weekly increase of five shillings per head, which would give the men of full age and in full work about a pound a week, would work out at about two thousand a year. She paused a moment, trying to put her further statement into its best order. "'Your farmers, you know,' he said, smiling after a pause, "'will be your chief difficulty.' "'Of course. But I thought of calling a meeting of them. I have discussed it with Mr. French. Of course he thinks me mad, but he gave me some advice.' i should propose to them all fresh leases with certain small advantages that louis craven thinks would tempt them at a reduced rental exactly answering to the rise in wages then in return they must accept a sort of fair wage clause binding them to pay henceforward the standard wage of the estate she looked up her face expressing urgent though silent interrogation you must remember he said quickly that though the estate is recovering and rents have been fairly paid about here during the last eighteen months you may be called upon at any moment to make the reductions which hampered your uncle these reductions will of course fall upon you as before seeing that the farmers in a different way will be paying as much as before have you left margin enough i think so she said eagerly i shall live here very simply and accumulate all the reserve fund i can i have set all my heart upon it i know there are not many people could do such a thing other obligations would must come first and it may turn out a mistake but whatever happens whatever any of us socialists or not may hope for in the future here one is with one's conscience and one's money and these people who like oneself have but the one life in all labour it is the modern question isn't it how much of the product of labour the workman can extract from the employer about here there is no union to act for the labourers they have practically no power but in the future we must surely hope they will combine that they will be stronger strong enough to force a decent wage what ought to prevent my free will anticipating a moment since i can do it that we all want to see she spoke with a strong feeling but his ear detected a new note something deeper and wistfuller than of old well as you say you are for experiments he replied not finding it easy to produce his own judgment quickly then in another tone it was always helen's cry she glanced up at him her lips trembling i know do you remember how he used to say the big changes may come the big collectivist changes but neither you nor i will see them i pray not to see them meanwhile all still hangs upon comes back to the individual here are you with your money and power there are those men and women whom you can share with in new and honourable ways to-day then she checked herself suddenly but now i want you to tell me will you tell me all the objections you see you must often have thought such things over she was looking nervously straight before her she did not see the flash of half bitter half tender irony that crossed his face her tone of humility of appeal was so strange to him remembering the past yes very often he answered well i think these are the kind of arguments you will have to meet he went through the objections that any economist would be sure to weigh against a proposal of the kind 
as clearly as he could, and at some length, but without zest. What affected Marcella all through was not so much the matter of what he said as the manner of it. It was so characteristic of the two voices in him, the voice of the idealist, checked and mocked always by the voice of the observer and the student. A year before, the little harangue would have set her aflame with impatience and wrath. Now, beneath the speaker, she felt and yearned towards the man. Yet, as to the scheme, when all demurs were made, she was of the same opinion still. His arguments were not new to her. The inward eagerness overrode them. "'In my own case,' he said, at last, the tone passing instantly into reserve and shyness, as always happened when he spoke of himself, "'my own wages are two or three shillings higher than those paid generally by the farmers on the estate, and we have a pension fund. But so far I have felt the risks of any wholesale disturbance of labour on the estate, depending, as it must entirely in my case, on the individual life and will, to be too great to let me go further.' i sometimes believed that it is the farmers who would really benefit most by experiments of the kind she protested vehemently being at the moment of course not at all in love with mankind in general but only with those members of mankind who came within the eye of imagination he was enchanted to see the old self come out again positive obstinate generous to see the old confident pose of the head the dramatic ease of gesture meanwhile something that had to be said that must indeed be said if he were to give her serious and official advice pressed uncomfortably on his tongue you know he said not looking at her when at last she had for the moment exhausted argument and prophecy you have to think of those who will succeed you here still more you have to think of marriage before you pledge yourself to the halving of your income now he must needs look at her intently, out of sheer nervousness. The difficulty he had had in compelling himself to make the speech at all had given a certain hardness and stiffness to his voice. She felt a sudden shock and chill, resented what he had dismally felt to be an imperative duty. "'I do not think I have any need to think of it in this connection,' she said proudly, and getting up she began to gather her papers together. The spell was broken, the charm gone. He felt that he was dismissed. With a new formality and silence, she led the way into the hall, he following. As they neared the library, there was a sound of voices. Marcella opened the door in surprise, and there, on either side of the fire, sat Betty MacDonald and Frank Levin. "'That's a mercy!' cried Betty, running forward to Marcella and kissing her. "'I really don't know what would have happened "'if Mr. Levin and I had been left alone any longer. "'As for the Kilkenny cats, my dear, don't mention them.' "'The child was flushed and agitated, "'and there was an angry light in her blue eyes. "'Frank looked simply lumpish and miserable. "'Yes, here I am,' said Betty, holding Marcella, "'and chattering as fast as possible. "'I made Miss Rayburn bring me over "'that I might just catch a sight of you. "'She would walk home and leave the carriage for me.' "'Isn't it like all the topsy-turvy things nowadays? "'When I'm her age, I suppose I shall have gone back to dolls. "'Please to look at those ponies. "'They're pawing your gravel to bits. "'And as for my watch, just inspect it.' "'She thrust it reproachfully under Marcella's eyes. 
"'You've been such a time in there talking "'that Sir Frank and I have had time to quarrel for life, "'and there isn't a minute left for anything rational. "'Oh, good-bye, my dear, good-bye. "'I never kept Miss Rayburn waiting for lunch yet, "'did I, Mr. Aldous? "'And I mustn't begin now. "'Come along, Mr. Aldous. "'You'll have to come home with me. "'I'm frightened to death of those ponies. "'You shan't drive, but if they bolt, "'I'll give them to you to pull in. "'Dear, dear, Marcella, let me come again soon, directly.' "'A few more sallies and kisses.' a few more angry looks at Frank and appeals to Aldous, who was much less responsive than usual, and the child was seated, very erect and rosy, on the driving seat of the little pony carriage, with Aldous beside her. "'Are you coming, Frank?' said Aldous. "'There's plenty of room.' His strong brow had a pucker of annoyance. As he spoke he looked, not at Frank, but at Marcella. She was standing a trifle back, among the shadows of the doorway, and her attitude conveyed to him an impression of proud aloofness. A sigh that was half pain, half resignation, passed his lips unconsciously. "'Thank you, I'll walk,' said Frank, fiercely. "'Now, will you please explain to me why you look like that and talk like that?' said Marcella, with cutting composure, when she was once more in the library, and Frank, crimson to the roots of his hair, and saying incoherent things, had followed her there. "'I should think you might guess,' said Frank, in reproachful misery, as he hung over the fire. "'Not at all,' said Marcella. "'You are rude to Betty, and disagreeable to me, by which I suppose that you are unhappy. But why should you be allowed to show your feelings when other people don't?' Frank fairly groaned. "'Well,' he said, making efforts at a tragic calm, and looking for his hat, "'you will, none of you, be troubled with me long.' I shall go home to-morrow and take my ticket for California the day after. You, said Marcella, go to California? What right have you to go to California? What right? Frank stared. Then he went on impetuously. If a girl torments a man, as Betty has been tormenting me, there is nothing for it, I should think, but to clear out of the way. I am going to clear out of the way, whatever anybody says. And shoot big game, I suppose. Amuse yourself somehow. Frank hesitated. "'Well, a fellow can't do nothing,' he said helplessly. "'I suppose I shall shoot.' "'And what right have you to do it? Have you any more right than a public official would have to spend public money in neglecting his duties?' Frank stared at her. "'Well, I don't know what you mean,' he said at last angrily. "'Give it up.' "'It's quite simple what I mean. You have inherited your father's property. Your tenants pay you rent that comes from their labour. "'Are you going to make no return for your income, and your house, and your leisure?' "'Ah, that's your socialism,' cried the young fellow, roused by her tone. "'No return? Why, they have the land.' "'If I were a thorough-going socialist,' said Marcella steadily, "'I should say to you, go. The sooner you throw off all ties to your property, the sooner you prove to the world that you and your class are mere useless parasites, the sooner we shall be rid of you.' but unfortunately i am not such a good socialist as that i waver i am not sure of what i wish but one thing i am sure of that unless people like you are going to treat their lives as a profession to take their calling seriously there are no more superfluous drones no more idle plunderers than you in all civilised society was she pelting him in this way that she might so get rid of some of her own inner smarted restlessness if so, the unlucky Frank could not guess it. He could only feel himself intolerably ill-used. 
he had meant to pour himself out to her on the subject of betty and his woes and here she was rating him as to his duties of which he had hardly as yet troubled himself to think being entirely taken up either with his grievances or his enjoyments i am sure you know you're talking nonsense he said sulkily though he shrank from meeting her fiery look and if i am idle there are plenty of people idler than me people who live on their money with no land to bother about and nothing to do for it at all on the contrary it is they who have an excuse they have no natural opening perhaps no plain call you have both and as i said before you have no right to take holidays before you have earned them you have got to learn your business first and then do it give your eight hours day like other people who are you that you should have all the cake of the world and other people the crusts frank walked to the window and stood staring out with his back turned to her her words stung and tingled and he was too miserable to fight i shouldn't care whether it were cake or crusts he said at last in a low voice turning round to her if only betty would have me do you think she is any the more likely to have you said marcella unrelenting if you behave as a loafer and a runaway don't you suppose that betty has good reasons for hesitating when she sees the difference between you and-and other people frank looked at her sombrely a queer mixture of expressions on the face in which the maturer man was already to be discerned at war with the powerful young animal i suppose you mean lord maxwell there was a pause you may take what i said she said at last looking into the fire as meaning anybody who pays honestly with work and brains for what society has given him as far as he can pay at any rate now look here said frank coming dolefully to sit down beside her don't slate me any more i'm a bad lot i know well an idle lot i don't think i'm a bad lot but it's no good your preaching to me while betty's sticking pins into me like this now just let me tell you how she's been behaving marcella succumbed and heard him he glanced at her surreptitiously from time to time but he could make nothing of her she sat very quiet while he described the constant companionship between aldous and betty and the evident designs of miss raeburn just as when he made his first confidences to her in london he was vaguely conscious that he was doing a not very gentlemanly thing but again he was too unhappy to restrain himself and he longed somehow to make an ally of her well i have only one thing to say she said at last with an odd nervous impatience go and ask her and have done with it she might have some respect for you then no i won't help you but if you don't succeed i'll pity you i promise you that and now you must go away he went feeling himself hardly treated yet conscious nevertheless of a certain stirring of the moral waters which had both stimulus and balm in it she left behind sat quiet in the old library for a few lonely minutes the boy's plight made her alternately scornful and repentant of her sharpness to him as to his report one moment it plunged her in an anguish she dared not fathom the next she was incredulous could not simply make herself take the thing as real but one thing had been real that word from aldous to her of marriage the nostril dilated the breast heaved as she lost all thought of frank in a resentful passion that could neither justify nor calm itself it seemed still as though he had struck her 
yet she knew well that she had nothing to forgive. Next morning she went down to the village, meaning to satisfy herself on two or three points connected with the new cottages. On the way she knocked at the rectory garden door, in the hope of finding Mary Harden and persuading her to come with her. She had not seen much of Mary since their return. Still, she had had time to be painfully struck once or twice with the white and bloodless look of the rector's sister, and with a certain patient silence about her which seemed to Marcella new. Was it the monotony of the life, or had both of them been overworking and underfeeding as usual? The rector had received Marcella with his old gentle but rather distant kindness. Two years before he had felt strongly about many of her proceedings, and had expressed himself frankly enough, at least to Mary. Now he had put his former disapprovals out of his mind, and was only anxious to work smoothly with the owner of Mellor. He had a great respect for dignities, and she, as far as the village was concerned, was to be his dignity henceforward. Moreover, he humbly and truly hoped that she might be able to enlighten him as to a good many modern conceptions and ideas about the poor, for which, absorbed as he was either in almsgiving of the traditional type, or spiritual ministration, or sacramental theory, he had little time, and if the truth were known, little affinity. In answer to her knock, Marcella heard a faint come in from the interior of the house. She walked into the dining-room and found Mary sitting by the little table in tears. There were some letters before her, which she pushed away as Marcella entered, but she did not attempt to disguise her agitation. "'What is it, dear? Tell me,' said Marcella, sitting down beside her and kissing one of the hands she held. And Mary told her. It was the story of her life a simple tale of ordinary things, such as wring the quiet hearts and train the unnoticed saints of this world. In her first youth, when Charles Harden was for a time doing some divinity lecturing in his Oxford college, Mary had gone up to spend a year with him in lodgings. Their Sunday teas and other small festivities were frequented by her brother's friends, men of like type with himself, and most of them either clergymen or about to be ordained between one of them a young fellow looking out for his first curacy and mary an attachment had sprung up which mary could not even now speak of she hurried over it with a trembling voice to the tragedy beyond mr shelton got his curacy went off to a parish in the lincolnshire fens and there was talk of their being married in a year or so but the exposure of a bitter winter's night risked in the struggle across one of the bleakest flats of the district to carry the sacrament to a dying parishioner, had brought on a peculiar and agonising form of neuralgia, and from this pain so nobly earned had sprung, O oh, mystery of human fate, a morphia habit, with all that such a habit means for mind and body. It was discovered by the poor fellow's brother, who brought him up to London and tried to cure him. Meanwhile he himself had written to Mary to give her up, i have no will left and am no longer a man he wrote to her it would be an outrage on my part and a sin on yours if we did not cancel our promise charles who took a hard ascetic view held much the same language and mary submitted heart-broken then came a gleam of hope the brother's care and affection prevailed there were rumours of great improvement of resumption of work just two years ago when you first came here i was beginning to believe 
she turned away her head to hide the rise of tears, that it might still come right. But after some six or eight months of clerical work in London, fresh trouble developed, lung mischief showed itself, and the system, undermined by long and deep depression, seemed to capitulate at once. "'He died last December, at Madeira,' said Mary, quietly. "'I saw him before he left England. We wrote to each other almost to the end. He was quite at peace.' This letter here was from the chaplain at Madeira, who was kind to him, to tell me about his grave. That was all. It was the sort of story that somehow might have been expected to belong to Mary Harden, to her round, plaintive face, to her narrow, refined experience, and she told it in a way eminently characteristic of her modes of thinking, religious or social, with old-fashioned or conventional phrases which, whatever might be the case with other people, had lost none of their bloom or meaning for her. Marcella's face showed her sympathy. They talked for half an hour, and at the end of it Mary flung her arms round her companion's neck. There, she said, now we must not talk any more about it. I am glad I told you. It was a comfort. And somehow, I don't mean to be unkind, but I couldn't have told you in the old days. It's wonderful how much better I like you now than I used to do though perhaps we don't agree much better. Both laughed, though the eyes of both were full of tears. Presently they were in the village together. As they neared the herd's old cottage, which was now empty and to be pulled down, a sudden look of disgust crossed Marcella's face. "'Did I tell you my news of Minter Hurd?' she said. No, Mary had heard nothing. So Marcella told the grotesque and ugly news, as it seemed to her, which had reached her at Amalfi. Jim Hurd's widow was to be married again, to the queer, lanky professor of elocution, with the Italian name and shifty eye, who lodged on the floor beneath her in Brown's buildings, and had been wont to come in of an evening and play comic songs to her and the children. Marcella was vehemently sure that he was a charlatan, that he got his living by a number of small dishonesties, that he had scented Minter's pension, but apart from the question whether he would make Minta a decent husband, or live upon her and beat her, was the fact itself of her remarriage, in itself hideous to the girl. "'Marry him,' she said. "'Marry anyone. Isn't it incredible?' They were in front of the cottage. Marcella paused a moment and looked at it. She saw again in sharp vision the miserable woman fainting on the settle, the dwarf sitting handcuffed under the eye of his captors, she felt again the rush of that whirlwind of agony through which she had borne the wife's helpless soul in that awful dawn. And after that, exit, with her professor of elocution. It made the girl sick to think of. And Mary, out of a Puseyite dislike of second marriage, felt and expressed much the same repulsion. Well, Minter Heard was far away, and if she had been there to defend herself, her powers of expression would have been no match for theirs nor does youth understand such pleas as she might have urged will lord maxwell continue the pension said mary marcella stopped again involuntarily so that was his doing she said i suppose as much you did not know cried mary in distress oh i believe i ought not to have said anything about it i always guessed it said marcella shortly and they walked on in silence presently they found themselves in front of mrs jellison's very trim and pleasant cottage which lay further along the common 
to the left of the road to the court. There was an early pear tree in blossom over the porch, and a swelling greenery of buds in the little garden. "'Will you come in?' said Mary. "'I should like to see Isabella Westall.' Marcella started at the name. "'How is she?' she asked. "'Just the same. She has never been in her right mind since. But she is quite harmless and quiet.' They found Mrs. Jellison on one side of the fire, with her daughter on the other, and the little six-year-old Johnny playing between them. Mrs. Jellison was straw-plating, twisting the straws with amazing rapidity, her fingers stained with red from the dye of them. Isabella was, as usual, doing nothing. She stared when Marcella and Mary came in, but she took no other notice of them. Her powerful and tragic face had the look of something originally full of intention, from which spirit and meaning had long departed, leaving a fine but lifeless outline. Marcella had seen it last on the night of the execution, in ghastly apparition at Minter Hurd's window, when it might have been caught by some sculptor in quest of the secrets of violent expression, fixed in clay or marble, and labelled revenge or passion. Its passionless emptiness now filled her with pity and horror. She sat down beside the widow and took her hand. Mrs. Westall allowed it for a moment, then drew her own away suddenly, and Marcella saw a curious and sinister contraction of the eyes. "'Ah! you never know how much Isabella understands, and how much she don't,' Mrs. Jellison was saying to Mary. "'I can't allus make her out, but she don't give no trouble. And as for that boy, he's a chirruper, he is. He gives em fine times at school, he do.' "'Miss Barton, she asked him in class Thursday about Ananias and Sapira. "'Johnny,' says she, "'whatever made him do such a wicked thing?' "'Well, I don't know,' says he. "'It was just their nasty good-for-nothing,' says he. "'But they was great sillies,' says he. "'Oh, he don't mean no harm, Lord bless you. "'The men is all born contrary, and they can't help themselves. "'Oh, thank you, Miss. "'My health is pretty tidy, though I have been plagued this winter "'with something they call the flensy. "'I were very bad.' "'You'll go to bed, Mrs. Jellison,' says Dr. Sharp, "'or you'll know of it. "'But I won't going to be talked to by him. "'Why, I knowed him when he were no higher than our Johnny. "'And I kept puddling along, "'and one morning I were fairly choked, "'and I just crawled into that parlour "'and I took a sup of brandy out of the bottle.' "'She looked complacently at Mary, "'quite conscious that the rector's sister "'must be listening to her with disapproving ears. "'And, Lord bless you, "'it cut the phlegm it did that very moment. "'My, I did cough!' "'I drawed it up by the yard, I did, "'and I crept back along the wall, "'and you could have knocked me down "'with one of me own straws. "'But I've been better ever since, "'and beginning to eat my victuals too, "'though I'm never no great pecker. "'I ain't not at no time.' "'Mary managed to smother her emotions "'on the subject of the brandy, "'and the old woman chattered on, "'throwing out the news of the village "'in a series of humorous fragments, "'tinged in general with the lowest opinion "'of human nature.' when the girls took leave of her she said slyly to marcella and how about your plate-in miss though i dare say i'm a bolden for astin marcella coloured well i've got it to think about mrs jellison we must have a meeting in the village and talk it over one of these days the old woman nodded in a shrewd silence and watched them depart well i reckon jimmy gedge'll last my time she said to herself with a chuckle if Mrs. Jellison had this small belief in the powers of the new mistress of Mellor over matters which, according to her, had been settled generations ago by the Lord and Nature, Marcella certainly was in no mood to contradict her. She walked through the village on her return, 
scanning everything about her, the slatternly girls plating on the doorsteps, the children in the lane, the loungers round the various publics, the labourers, old and young, who touched their caps to her, with a moody and passionate eye. "'Mary,' she broke out as they neared the rectory, "'I shall be twenty-four directly. "'How much harm do you think I shall have done here "'by the time I am sixty-four? "'Mary laughed at her and tried to cheer her, "'but Marcella was in the depths of self-disgust. "'What is wanted, really wanted,' she said with intensity, "'is not my help, but their growth. "'How can I make them take for themselves, "'take roughly and selfishly even, "'if they will only take? "'As for my giving,' "'What relation has it to anything real or lasting?' Mary was scandalised. "'I declare you are as bad as Mr. Craven,' she said. "'He told Charles yesterday that the curtsies of the old women in the village to him and Charles, women old enough to be their grandmothers, sickened him of the whole place, and that he should regard it as the chief object of his work here to make such things impossible in the future.' or perhaps you're still of mr mr wharton's opinion you'll be expecting charles and me to give up charity but it's no good my dear we're not advanced and we never shall be at the mention of wharton marcella threw her proud head back wave after wave of changing expression passed over the face i often remember the things mr wharton said in this village she said at last there was life and salt and power in many of them it's not what he said, but what he was, that one wants to forget. They parted presently, and Marcella went heavily home. The rising of the spring, the breath of the April air, had never yet been sad and oppressive to her, as they were to-day. End of Book 4, Chapter 5